This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Well, I'd like to say a prayer, and then we can get started. Okay, let's, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here, and I thank you for just the wondrous message you've given us, this present truth message, which there's nothing else comes even close to it. It's a privilege and it's a responsibility, and I just pray that when this seminar is done, we'll come away strengthened in aspects of what we believe and why we believe it. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I guess you know my name is Clifford Goldstein. I'm the editor of the Adult Bible Study Guide, the Sabbath School Quarterly. I've been I've been at the GC about 33 years. I've been editing the quarterly about 19 years. And I just wrote this book. It's called Baptizing the Devil, Evolution and the Seduction of Christianity. And this seminar is basically based on things in the book. If I'm not going to be able to cover everything, you could just read the book, okay? And uh, some things I might be able to flesh out a little more because actually when I, when I got done with the book, I just, I'm, I'm still reading and studying. In other words, I'm hoping to get opportunities like this to talk about these things more, and I want to go beyond what I just had in the book. And the essence, I did not write this book specifically for Seventh-day Adventists. I wrote it for any serious Christian. They take their faith seriously. They take Scripture seriously. But they've been inundated by the very powerful and exceedingly effective propaganda coup of evolution. It's become part of the intellectual culture. And a lot of thinking people are going to struggle. Well, how could, you know, but it's science and so forth. And yet, at the same time, they see the contradiction. And I spent about five years on this, three years reading and studying, and then about a year and a half putting it together. And I have been freed from this, well, just, it's science, and uh, I'm going to be very careful. You read the book, I'm not anti-science, I'm anti-what they call scientism. Maybe some of you have experienced this. You're talking to someone, and they say, but it's science. You ever experienced that? And what's the implication? The implication is we need to bow down and genuflect before it and surrender any and all recalcitrant views. Because, after all, it's science. And let's face it, science is pretty impressive, okay? It's astonishing what science has done, what it can do, but it's also just as fascinating when you understand what science has not done and what science cannot do. 
And that's some of the things I want to look at in the seminar. And, you know, I've given things like this a few times before, and inevitably, every time I, I don't get through a third of my material. And I have even more material now, so I'm gonna, I, we gave a, an outline, you know, the different topics, but I'm not gonna lock myself into that. We'll just see how it goes, and at some point, maybe the last 15 minutes, if somebody could, this goes from 9.15 to what time? 10.15, right? If maybe somebody at 10 o'clock could just say to me, hey, it's, you know, just point 10 o'clock, because I'd like to leave it open somewhat to some questions, to have an idea of maybe some of the things that you're interested in that I might be able to address, because I don't want to sit up here and wax eloquent about a bunch of stuff that I'm interested in, and that might not be what you have, but we've got five hours, and I do think in five hours we could cover a fair amount of material. And, and don't sit here and blindly accept everything I'm saying. You know, it's funny, I've been publishing books now for decades. And there's a problem with that. Is I don't believe everything the way I believed everything decades ago. And yet it's in print. It's in print. And sometimes, in fact, I'll tell one last story. I used to do cassettes, tapes with American Cassette Ministries. And I started doing that like 30-some years ago. And then I remember one day I went to say to the guy, you know, some of these tapes that I made 30 years ago, tapes, that's how far back we're going, I don't necessarily th see things this way. And I thought about saying, you know, maybe it'd be good if you could kind of pull them. But then I thought about it later. I thought, no, no, no. Because maybe the stuff I'm speaking about today there might be people that don't have the slightest interest in it. That might not be where they're at, whereas the Clifford Goldstein 30 years ago might be what they need at that time. So anyway, I, I, um, I don't know how I even got on that topic. I, I lost my train of thought. I got to stick to my notes or else I'm going to go all over the place. I want to spend a few minutes talking about how I became an Adventist. Because it's very, to a certain degree, related on a couple of levels to what I want to talk about. I grew up in a very secular Jewish home. I often joked, I say, in our family, the Jewish holidays boil down to, they try to kill us, they failed, let's eat. That was, if you have Jewish friends, secular Jewish friends, you'll know that that's the essence of it right there. Now, I had always been, well, anyway, because I was raised and I was educated in a secular environment, I was raised and educated on evolution. I don't remember in my life ever questioning it. I don't remember it be ever challenging it or ever hearing it challenged. And I remember distinctly I was in the fifth grade. And I remember I had this blue textbook. And I don't really have that good of a memory, but I remember being home and memorizing 
the different aeons of the Earth's history, the Azoic era, Archaeozoic era, Protozoic era, Paleozoic, Mesozoic, and Cenozoic. I still remember that from the fifth grade. And then I remember distinctly, too, they had a picture of like a shallow pool and then a one-cell creature, then a jellyfish, then some kind of amphibian, you know, and then, then so a marsupial or something, and then a hominid, and then a Neanderthal, and then a human being, and they drew a line through it. And that was human history, human evolution. I remember that distinctly in the fifth grade. Then you jump together, you jump to the ninth grade, Nautilus Junior High School. And a little aside, I found out a while back that Doug Batchelor and I were in that same junior high school in Miami Beach at the same time. There was a Burger King everybody hung out with and did a lot of stuff. I'm not going to say what we did, but, but Doug knew the Burger King. But anyway, I remember in the ninth grade, I thought I was hot stuff. Okay, good. That's working a little better. Because I knew what ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny is. How many of you know what that is? I was in the ninth grade and I knew what that was. And that was the idea that a, an embryo goes through the phases of evolution. That if you look at it, you'll see fins and gills and so forth. I was being taught that in 1969 even though decades earlier, decades earlier, it had been known to have been a fraud. Even a hard-nosed evolutionist as Stephen Jay Gould thought it was criminal the way this thing was being promulgated. It was first promulgated around the turn of the century. And in the ninth grade, I was being taught it in 1969. Then jump ahead to the University of Florida at Gainesville. I had an anthropology course, and nothing particularly stands out, but I do remember how evolution was the ultimate subtext of everything we had been taught. Okay, Now, what happened was, in 1979, in the fall of 1979, I had a very, I'll say, Dramatic. I guess every conversion experience is dramatic, but I became a born-again believer in 1979. All I knew was this, and I'm not going to deviate on this now too far. It hit me about 21 years, I was about 21 years old, this was a few years earlier, and it hit me that truth had to exist. Truth with a capital T. There's a world, there's a universe, there's something here, something had to explain it. And it hit me at that age, something, and whatever explained it, that is the truth with a capital T. Now, my realization that truth had to exist was a completely separate issue from whether I or anyone could ever know it, okay? Totally separate issue. The fact that it had, I knew I couldn't be wrong about that. There's something here. Maybe we're all brains and vats. Fine. We're all brains and vats. Maybe the universe always existed. Fine. Whatever it was, there was something here. Something had to explain it. That had to be the truth. And I thought, if it were humanly possible, 
Because again, the fact that it had to be there and me knowing it, totally separate things. But I thought, if I could know it, I wanted to know it. I didn't care where it led me, what it cost me, what I had to suffer, what I had to give up. I thought, if I could know it, I wanted to know it. And all I know is of all the different ways I could have gone, all the different paths, I ended up becoming a Seventh-day Adventist. Okay. Now, I've jumped ahead a little there, but I got converted in the fall of 1979. I had a born-again experience. I was born, it was total experience. There was nothing rational, nothing intellectual about my experience. I mean, it was very much... I don't like to compare myself to Paul, but what did Apostle Paul's, what did Saul of Tarsus' study get him to do? Got him to kill Christians, okay? And then he's walking along and he has this supernatural experience. He's born again, and overnight he becomes a believer in Jesus. That is something exactly what happened to me. So I'm a born-again believer, and instantly it's like all reality changes for me. As if, it was as if my whole life I was taught the earth was flat, and now I suddenly discover it's round. At the most, it was, it was an amazing experience. At the most fundamental level, almost, I realized almost everything I had believed and been taught my whole life was wrong. And that was rough. I was 23 years old. But there was one area in particular where instantly I sensed a clash. I sensed a problem. And that was evolution and my born-again experience. Which is kind of fascinating because I knew, folks, if you would have said to me then, Cliff, you are a sinner, I would have looked at you like, what, what are you talking about? Okay, and I, and I say that only to show you I knew nothing. I knew nothing of the Bible, nothing of Christianity. I mean, I knew nothing about anything. I was as green. I didn't even, the idea of being a sinner. But for some reason, at the most gut level, I sensed how could this be true and evolution be true? And I went to the Christians in the health food store where I first met. They were Adventists. At that time, I didn't know they were Adventists. It would have meant nothing to me had they said they were. And in the beginning, and in the, in the beginning, they were just kind of brushing me off. Oh, it's not a big deal. Evolution's not true, you know, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And I, um, and I... I struggled with that until finally, finally they said, they gave me a book to read. And they said, read this book. And I don't even remember who the author of the book was. It was creationist literature. And quite frankly, some creationist literature could be as speculative and as bad science as the quote bona fide stuff. But what happened was, is the scales fell off my eyes. I saw something that I had never seen before. And little did I realize that what I was about to experience is a fundamental problem in the whole question of science that we will touch on 
later. Look, the bones are in the ground. The fossils are in the ground. No one's going to deny that they're in the, the ground. And, you know, the, Satan created the bones to test our faith. Please, let's not go there, okay? Let's not, that's the kind of stuff that just makes creationists. That's the kind of stuff where they justifiably put us in the class with flat earthers, okay? So, the bones are in the ground, but for the first time in my life, I was shown, see, all my life I was interpreted them through one paradigm. And we'll come back to this word later. The bones are there. My whole life I was taught, well, it was because of billions of years of evolution. And suddenly I was shown for the first time, hey, there's other ways to interpret these things. There are other ways you can interpret it to explain the phenomena. In fact, this is called, in the philosophy of science, it's called the underdetermination of theory by evidence. And it's the idea... It's the idea that you can, you can have any one of a number of different theories to explain phenomena. And we'll look at that later on. You can have any one of a number of things, and they make accurate predictions. I'm going to give you an example later, specifically of what I'm talking about. But the point was, was that for the first time in my life, I was shown, wow, there's another way to interpret this. And, you know, I was pretty angry. I felt pretty angry. It wasn't, you know, wasn't so much that, you know, it was a secular worldview. What else were they going to teach me other than evolution? But what I was, got angry about was the hard-nosed, dogmatic way that it was taught. I was taught it as an absolute fact, uncontroverted, unquestioned, unchallenged. As I said, I don't remember one time growing up ever, ever hearing it being challenged. I mean, you didn't challenge it any more than you challenged that the earth was round. After all, folks, this is science. Science. And isn't science this rational, objective, unbiased view of reality and how reality works? I mean, this was the middle of the 20th, I was already in the late 20th century. Come on, science has proven itself over and over and over again. I love this quote from the philosopher Bertrand Russell. He says, what science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. It's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. See, the idea is that only science can reveal to us truth. And that one day, all that we'll ever need to know will be revealed to us through science. And again, if you're ever in a debate with someone, and what they'll say to you, but it's science. And the whole idea is, well, it's science. We have to bow down and surrender before it. And 
A lot of people feel that way, and they're not dumb. There's a lot of good reasons for people to believe that way. Doesn't necessarily, one of the things I've discovered in my book and by writing and talk about, you can have very, very, very good reasons for believing in things that ultimately turn out to be wrong. Okay, it's an important point. You can have good reasons to believe in things that eventually are turned out wrong. Let me read you another quote. This was from an article called The Folly of Scientism. See, somebody recently wrote a real nasty review of my book in Adventist Today, which what I expect A today to be positive, you know. <laughs> you know, I got so ticked off because he distorted it, they let me write a response and they published the response. And it got a little heated on there and on there, but you know, I wasn't gonna just you know, I said I would be very happy somebody to write a review of my book and point out faults and weaknesses because that could help me then hone in my arguments, or if I had an argument that was wrong, you know, it's one of these things, you know, you don't push it anymore, but instead he twisted everything I said and attacked me and all that. But he, was a, he called me a scientific nihilist, which means, you know, just reject science. I don't reject science. I'd have, my, I'd, I'd have a boy who'd be dead if it wasn't for science, okay? But what I am dealing with is what they call scientism. And let me read you a quote from an evolutionary biologist. Both in the work of professional philosophers and in popular writings by natural sciences, it is frequently claimed that natural science does or soon will constitute the entire domain of truth. And this attitude is becoming more widespread among scientists themselves. Because it's the idea that you have a natural-only universe and that science alone can answer the questions. Now, it's very alluring. You know, I mean, look what science has taught us. You know, a few hundred years ago, some unfortunate old woman Selling herbs in a marketplace could have been burned at the stake as a witch for causing a drought that now we could better understand came because of changes in temperatures in the ocean. Okay, and sure, the ancient Incas feared that jaguars attacking the moon at night were jaguars attacking the moon at night could now better be explained as a, as a lunar eclipse. And you could go on and on. Thanks to science, we no longer bleed people. We've split the atom. We've gone to the moon, you know, built smartphones. The list goes on and on and on. We've extended human life, you know, as we've known. You know, in other words, and science and technology, they've greatly impacted our life and how we live. And they've opened up whole new vistas of understanding of things that we people never understood before. Thus, why should I have been taught evolution? Why shouldn't I have been taught evolution in any other way other than this unquestionable, unassailable, and unchallenged objective truth? The kind of truth that 
science supposedly gives us. And that's really what I want to look at because it's, it's, you know, every age lives with its myths. We tend to think, well, you know, we're too sophisticated. We don't live with myths. So we, we now have science. But see, that's the meta-myth. That's the great, great myth of our age because it's science. It's got to be true. And that, I think, can lead people to, well, I think it already has led people, even in our day and age, to believe some incredibly foolish things. And it's got some devastating effects in the church, too. You know, a number of years ago, I've had a column in the Adventist Review for since probably Bill Clinton was president. And uh, about 10 years ago, I wrote a column, and I didn't think much of it. I called it Seventh-day Darwinians. And I took the position. It caused a furor, which I don't care. I went to change one thing. I believe it, but I basically took the position, which I thought was pretty uncontroversial. And if, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, seven-day Adventist, that if you're a Seventh-day Adventist and you believe in billions of years of evolution, you really, I said, don't you think you ought to find another church to be a member of? No. And I, to this day, and I hope we get through it. Put it this way. Let me, let, me phrase it, let, me, let me phrase it for you to let you understand at least how I see the issues. If the vast majority of some of the world's smartest people, the PhDs, the Nobel laureates, the postdocs, if the world's experts in physics, chemistry, biology, particle physics, astronomy, astrophysics, physiology. If the vast majority of, the, of these people, the vast majority of them, are correct, then I tell people, we're not going to hell because there is no hell. If they're correct, the world, some of the smart, if they're all correct, and what they say the science proves, I think I'll show you in the end, our religion is a joke. Our religion cannot possibly be true. Okay, now people would debate this, and I deal with this in the book. I deal with the whole section of the book trying to show the sad attempts by theistic evolutionists to make it fit with the Bible. Okay, it's, it's pathetic. So I'm state that a pretty heavy thing. I'm saying if the world's smart, these people, if they're right, our religion cannot, now I'm sure there are people who say, oh, no, 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 but I would, I would love to get in a one-on-one -on -one with someone. Let's look at the text. So we're dealing with a heavy thing here, okay? But anyway, I took that point that if you, because my point here is, and you would have thought it wouldn't have been a big deal, but I'm telling you, it, and it caused a bit, I'm not going to get into all the details, but it caused quite a furor. And uh, I got left twisting in the wind and all that, but that's another 
that's another story. Okay, now, but I want to take this question here for a moment. When, I, when you make the statement that if, if you believe in scientism, that everything could be explained through science and science alone, what kind of statement is that? What's that? Okay, no, not necessarily. What kind? You see, that's a philosophical statement. That's not a scientific statement. And see, one of the things I discovered was a, a lot of times, just because scientists make a statement, doesn't necessarily make it a scientific statement. But do you realize, though, what I just said, and this lure is so powerful, I remember I kept on saying, I need to stop this. I just stepped into my own trap. When I say it's not a scientific statement, it's a philosophical statement. What does that imply? That what we call science is a philosophical Okay, okay, but if I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, basically I'm saying, hey, it's not as credible as it would be if, I, if it were a scientific statement. See, I stepped into my own trap right there. Well, that's not even a scientific statement. That's a philosophical statement. Well, so what? Just because it's a scientific statement doesn't necessarily make it true as well. And that's some of the things I want to I wanna point out with. But the point is it's not always easy. It's not always easy to make those distinctions. But anyway, as I said, I worked through... I worked through the, um, when I met the Adventists, and I worked through that, and I suddenly realized my whole life I had been duped. But then, anyway, years later, after I become an Adventist, and I write this Seventh-day Darwinians, and I had no idea it would cause, but don't kid yourself. There are people who believe in evolution, who teach in our colleges. And I just find that, I just, I mean, I, I'm going to tell you, I could, it's the kind of thing, I could see myself going to some Adventist college and dousing myself in gasoline and burning myself alive. That's how strongly I feel about it. It is unbelievable to me that we, this is allowed to go on in our church. I just find it incomprehensible. And yet people will fight me on it. The guy that wrote this attack on A to A is affiliated with one of our colleges. I'll give you three guesses as to which one it is, but I'm not going to say. Anyway, anyway, the point is, but you know, I didn't do this seminar for them. I didn't write the book for these people. I, I truly wrote the book for people whom I, and I, I want to be careful, who I think truly take scripture seriously. And really see, wow, how can I possibly, you, you can't harmonize these things. How do I deal with this? How do I deal with the fact, because again, I'm saying if the world, some of the world's smartest people, the PhDs, biology, chemistry, people who spend their lives studying this stuff, people who get into the most incredible specialized detail, it's incredible. The specialization in biology and stuff. These people that are experts in it, I think they're foundationally, fundamentally wrong. And if they're not, 
There's, I just don't see any possible way our religion could be made any sense of it all. And I hope we'll spend a little time towards the end looking at that. So it's a fairly heavy issue. But again, for me, having done the research I've done and the reading I've done, so you're saying that the world's smartest people, the PhDs and all these people, they're wrong? Yeah, yeah. And I don't have the slightest problem saying it. And I'm hopeful when I'm done, you might not agree with me, but at least you'll be able to see where I'm coming from, why I hold the views I do, because very, a lot of the stuff I didn't know anything about before until I started doing the research. And really, what I really deal with and what we're going to deal with here and what I deal with in the book, more than anything, it's a philosophy of science. And I show people just because it's science. And here's the thing, too. It's a theme that I touch on over and over. Well, I'll give you an example. I remember 40 years ago, Time Magazine cover article on the dangers of saturated fat. Okay? It was science. The latest and greatest science 40 years ago. Don't eat the fat back. Okay? Don't eat your pork. Okay, saturated fat. Well, did you see Time Magazine about two years ago? The latest and greatest science. Well, saturated fat might not really be so bad after all. So it was science back then. Science now, they're saying different things. But now, this, but that's not my point because. When you understand science, this happens all the time. But this is the point, and I emphasize this over and over again. Saturated fat, they can stick it in a lab. They could put it under a microscope. They can dissect it. They can bombard it with proton beams. They can do all this stuff to it in a hundred different labs at the same time around the world. They could do all this stuff to it. Looking at the same thing, scientists seeing the same evidence, and they come up with contradictory or conflicting views or opinions. This is about something that's here and now. They could put it in a lab. And yet when scientists tell us that 800 million years ago, the, the, uh, the dinosaur evolved feathers 800 million years ago. We're, exposed, we're expected to bow down and accept it. Something 800, something that nobody has ever seen, something that's completely out of reach. So you remember, everything that they're telling us about evolution, they're looking at things now and retrodicting way, way back in the past. But my point is, if they're struggling over and disagreeing over what they could see in a lab now, why should we so dogmatically accept when they speculate about things they say happened, things that no longer are in existence, things that are not happening now, happen, you know, they say happened Billion, millions or even billions of years ago before anybody was ever there to see it. And these are things just to keep in mind. Anyway, I want to look at some of this stuff. As I said, I have so much material here. And somebody, again, keep an eye on it.
You guys remember the movie Apollo 13? After the ship blew up, there was this great scene where Ed Harris plays the head of NASA's flight operations. And they got a little whiteboard and they got a picture of the Earth, the Moon, and the spacecraft. And Ed Harris, they finally decide what they're going to do is they're going to let the, the spacecraft go around the moon and let the moon's gravity slingshot the capsule back to Earth. And guess what? Those of you old enough remember what happened. It worked. It worked. The science worked. And the fascinating thing about the science is this was the science developed in the 1700s by Sir Isaac Newton. If they could have taken Newton and transported him to NASA, they could have sat him in the room, given him a sheet of paper and a pencil and a few calculations, and Newton could have told them exactly what they would have to do. And they didn't need Newton, they did it themselves, and it brought it back. What a powerful example of the success of science. I mean, it worked. It worked. I mean, it did exactly everything that they said it did. So it worked. Therefore, if the science, here's a crucial point, or something I deal with in the book, and I've written on this. It's very, very tricky. It's very deceptive. This gum is just about starting to taste like chewing on a rubber band. Excuse me. Well, my wife would have a fit if she saw me doing this. Okay. Okay. Now, it worked. No, no, you could leave. Okay, okay. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't bother with my gum. Yeah. I don't want anybody to leave my gum alone. Yeah. The science worked. What does that then tell us about the science? Now, if you've read, by the way, just out of curiosity, because, and I say this for a reason, how many of you have read my book? Yeah, Baptizing the Devil. Okay, all right, well, all right, well, this one's well, not good that hardly anybody read it, but good on the other hand, because I just don't want to repeat stuff that you might, if everybody would have raised their hand, I'd have to redo the seminar, because I didn't want to. But the science worked. Therefore, what? You'd say the science is correct. Isn't right? That makes sense, huh? Well, suppose I were to tell you that I believe in many ways that that has absolutely nothing to do with it. Maybe, maybe. But I'm going to show you what done examples where the science works. And, and the science works even though the theories behind the science had long been discarded. Now let's just take a look at the Newton thing for a moment, okay? First of all, Newton, they say the, the discoverer of gravity. All right, well, everybody knew what gra gravity was there. They didn't. You know, he put it and mathematicalized it, but 
Newton had absolutely no idea what gravity was. In fact, he said that the idea of two bodies across empty space attracting each other, he said, it's so absurd, I don't know why anybody would believe it. Newton was talking about his own theory. Secondly, Newton built his whole theory on the idea of absolute space and absolute time. Space is the same everywhere. Time is the same everywhere. No change. Those theories are now considered, have been considered false. Albert Einstein with general relativity debunked them. And third, Einstein's theory, I mean Newton's theory, I've heard some people say Newton's theory was overturned by Einsteinian relativity. I think that's too strong. It was shown to be much more limited than people thought it was. It works at, 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 at slow speeds, but you get up to high speeds, his theory falls apart completely. Now, the point is, he created this theory. He had no idea what it was. He built it on false premises. And in a lot of conditions, it absolutely falls apart. The formula doesn't work. This is truth. You're finding this, this is scientific truth. See, this comes to a fascinating concept that I discovered in the philosophy of science. There are scientists and philosophers of science. In fact, when I was working on my manuscript, I gave it to a friend of mine who's a scientist. And any time I was saying anything about science as a quest for truth, he said to me, he marked it, he put an X, and he said, any honest scientist will tell you science is not about searching for truth. He said, all science tell you about is how the world appears to how the world appears to us and how we can make predictions about it. But it really doesn't tell us anything absolutely true about it. They say, you know, some people say, no, no, science is there. It's to tell us about the real world. Others say science is not about that, cannot tell us what's out there. All science could do is help us make predictions. And if the predictions work, that's all you need. I mean, Newton got the spacecraft back to Earth. What more do you want? You start getting into the reasons why. They say you're getting into metaphysics, you're getting into philosophy, you're getting into a whole bunch of stuff. So my point here is, right off the bat that we see a science, even as successful, as successful as Newton's law of gravity, isn't necessarily what we're led to believe. It's fascinating that on something so basic, what exactly science does, what it can do, what it teaches, there's an incredible amount of debate. Incredible. Now, a lot of practicing scientists, there's a saying, they say, shut up and do the calculations. In other words, a lot of practicing they don't care about this stuff. And that's fine. You don't have to care about it. But then don't expect every schnook 
to sit down and bow down before your pronouncements as if they're absolute truth. Go ahead. Oh, it's 10? Okay, let me just pull a little bit. Let me just see a little bit more. All right, look, let me... This is okay. Are right, you got any questions? You got any questions on anything so far or we can plug on ahead? Go, go ahead. Okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, this is good. I'm going to repeat it. He asked the question. He grew up in a place where they didn't do, wasn't raised on. What is, evolu what is the basic evolutionary theory? Okay. Here's the gist of it. This is what, now again, from an Adventist perspective, if you're a creationist and you really believe our stuff, Think for a minute. You know, I'm telling you, folks, I'm not going to get into this here. We have, I've been an Adventist now since 80. And some of the stuff I read in Ellen White, it's unbelievable. To, we don't even begin to realize what we got with her. You know, and the other day I was reading in Patriarchs and Prophets, and it's fascinating because I have spent years studying the philosophy of science. And then I'll read these lines from Ellen White. I thought, my goodness, this, in fact, there's a paragraph in the book Education that I was going to write one of my review columns on. And I said, I spent five years studying the philosophy of science on my own. And here's Ellen White in a few paragraphs caught the essence of everything it took me five years to learn. But the point is, Ellen White makes a statement. And again, I read it just the other day because I've been immersed in this stuff for years, and I read it the other morning. And you know, it's very heavy, folks. I told you I was 21 years old, and I thought I wanted to know truth no matter the cost. And then a other morning, and I, I've been reading Ellen White for a long time, I read something in Patriarchs and Prophets. She was talking something about the Antediluvians. And I thought, where did she get this? You know, this had to have been inspired. And it just hit me. Wow, I wanted to know truth no matter what. It hit me, man, I found it. I mean, it's just kind of, it's a little personal, silly thing, but like, was wow. But she made a statement. She said, as soon as people start speculating away from the written word, they get, I forgot what it was, they're going to get into nothing but error upon error upon error. So let me, let's just talk for a minute about what some of the world's smartest people right now, the uh, this experts, the PhDs, you know, the boom, 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 I could give you the whole, it's like in Daniel, what was it, Daniel 3 with the timbo, the sackbut, the boom, 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 and then eight times you get the, those eight instruments. To some of the world's smartest people right now. I have a book on my iPad called The Universe from Nothing. Some of them are teaching that. Out of nothing. Now then you'll get, they'll start quantifying it. Well, it's really a quantum fluctuation or something. So then don't say it's nothing, okay? It's a quantum fluctuation, fine. Then where to the quantum? But they'll say, out of nothing, you had the Big Bang. 
And space, time, matter, energy, all instantly were created out of nothing, okay? Or a quantum fluctuation. I mean, one of the dumbest quotes I ever read, Stephen, what's the guy, the guy in the wheelchair? Hawkins. That's terrible, the guy in the wheelchair. Excuse me. That's, yeah, that's terrible. Lord, forgive me. He said, because there's such a thing as the law of gravity, I'm paraphrasing his book, the, he wrote this new book on the, about the universe. Because there's such a thing as the law of gravity, the universe will create itself out of nothing. I mean, come on. Come on, gravity? I mean, what do you think gravity's real? What do you think people are getting all this plastic surgery from? You know, it's gravity, okay? But anyway, they're out of nothing, the universe, <laughs> well, whatever. Well, we want to try to lighten things up a little. The, the, the universe, the, the Big Bang, you know, the Big Bang, they teach space and time began at the Big Bang, which is kind of fascinating. And then you had these, because of gravity, these clumps of matter coalesced. Planets, stars, galaxies. Ba and then the basic chemicals, some of these basic chemicals that were there, eventually some of these chemicals became organic chemicals that somehow then turned into simple life form. And this life form was able to replicate itself. And then it replicated itself, and then it started to spread, and then through the forces of random mutation and natural selection, they first, you know, you started out with this tiny, and, and, and oh, I deal with this book, they, 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 they have all different theories. Some, you know, we often heard the shallow pool. That's the common one. Some are saying, no, 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 it was in, in clay. Some are saying it's in, it's in thermal vents. And some are arguing. They're arguing that life began in molten rock at least a thousand degrees centigrade. Okay, but wherever it was, they admit they don't know. They only know that it happened. The simple life form started. And then over millions of billions of years, I, I thought it was fascinating, a simple life evolves into an 80-ton brontosaurus. And then the 80-ton eventually died off, and because the dinosaurs died off, that then enabled other creatures to exist. And then over time, billions of years, you know, that, all that stuff, eventually human beings came. In fact, I'm reading right now Charles Darwin's The Descent of Man, and it's just... In other words, that's basically the theory. There was nothing planned, nothing calculated, just given enough time. Now, but the thing is, you know, it can, if you truly think about it, it's preposterous, but an awful lot of people. And it can, I mean, it's amazing how many people believe in it, how many people accept it. That's the essence of it. That's what they taught. The only thing I find sillier than that is the idea that Jesus did it. Okay. And that's what theistic evolutionists teach, that Jesus did it. Go ahead. Um, do, we, do we attempt to resolve that um, adaptation? 
Well, oh, see, that's a separate, of course, species adapt, of course. Nobody denies that. That's not an issue, of course, species adapt. I don't think that's ever been a question. But the fact that my check engine light goes on in my car doesn't mean that given enough time, my, my car's going to turn into a Boeing 747, okay? <laughs> no question species adapt. God created it that way. See, one of the things, too, I, this is a little bit deviation. If I ever taught a class in philosophy of science or philosophy in religion, I would start out, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm creating a word. I'm gonna, it's my made-up word. I expect you to know it and know what it means. I don't care if you believe it or not. That's a separate issue. I would call it partialism. You know, almost every heresy that I think we've ever seen in the Adventist church is an imbalance of truth. Take one example. There's a theology that came out of the left coast for 40 years. I kept on thinking after the guy who promoted it died, it would have died with him, but no such luck. But it emphasizes something true. It emphasizes the, the subjective side of the gospel. We see what Christ has done for us on the cross. And our hearts are changed. We become friends with God. Okay, there becomes, the whole gospel is nothing about any kind of legal thing with God. The whole, the gospel is about our relationship with God and how we respond to God. Well, that's a wonderful truth. And there's a lot of truth to it. But that truth was taken to such an extreme that these people mock the whole idea of substitutionary atonement. They do not believe Jesus died as a substitute or paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. So you got an aspect of truth. Karl Marx, I believe Karl Marx was onto something. How could you possibly deny the role and influence of economics in history? It's there. Marx got an element of truth, and what did he do? He took it and he so overemphasized that we got the joys of communism for all this time. And it obviously didn't work. And with Darwin, this comes back. There's no question species adapt. So you get an element of truth. This is what I truly believe happened. In fact, I got these three great quotes in my book where people were saying it's amazing that Darwin's theory of like natural, of, of survival of the fittest reflected the culture of Britain at the time with this dog-eat-dog -dog mercantile capitalism and, you know, this whole idea of, you know, the strong overcoming the weak and so on. And they thought it was kind of amazing that, Dar that you know, someone said it's amazing that God would just reveal his truth to 18th century Englishmen. You know, or maybe the fact was these eight, this 18th century Englishman reflecting on what he saw in his society applied it to nature. So I think Darwin saw nature change. There's no question it adapts. You take an element of truth and you expand it to where you get outright nonsense. I mean, think about it for a minute too, folks. 
if what we believe is correct, think about how utterly, utterly wrong science is. And all these scientists are. They're not even, you know, there's a, there's a thing they say when something is so bad and it deviates so far. There's a book out about, again, string theory, and they said it's not even wrong. It's so far off. It's so far. So think about this for a minute. If we believe six literal day creation, Adam, God breathed in him the breath of life, this whole thing, and we're correct. Think about it. just it's and again, it's Ellen White said how vain and how deceptive and how far off they'll get if they move away from what the scripture teaches. And that's what I believe evolution is. Yes, sir, go ahead. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's bringing up the question that I brought up earlier about saturated fat. Were you here for that? Yeah, saturated. You can look at the saturated fat now. You can do experiments on it now. You can do it now. And the fact is, they, they still debate over that. And now they're speculating about things hundreds, millions, even billions of years ago. And it, it, it's, it's a totally different kind of science. You know, Richard Dawkins would say that evolution is a certain is you can be sure that Paris is in the northern hemisphere. We can be as certain that evolution is true. And the problem is a lot of people pick up on that stuff and they buy into it and they believe on it. One of my talks I'm going to give later, maybe we'll even try to do it this morning. I'm, I might even do it uh, after the break is, why does science, put it this way, all right, I'm going to bring it. That's next. All right, that's good. I'm going to talk next about why does science, which teaches us so much, has revealed to us so I mean, it's amazing. And the technology that it works. Though, again, it's two different things. So very quickly, our cell phones, and I use this example in the book, our cell phones use two of the most successful technologies after this, and we'll take a break. They use general relativity and quantum physics. They're my, they're, you know, they both are, you know, special relativity is not that hard. Even I could do the math for special relativity. General relativity, Einstein couldn't do the math. He had to get an old teacher to teach Einstein the math for general relativity and quantum, forget that. But our cell phones use quantum physics and general relativity. And yet, if you, Brian Greene wrote this book called The Elegant Universe. Anybody ever read it, Brian? The Elegant. The bottom line is these two theories, which produce the most incredible, they say quantum theory could give you predictions like the length of the, the width of the American continent compared to a hair. 
That's how accurate predictions quantum physics could give you. Of course, if I, we get time later, accurate predictions are absolutely nothing to do with whether a theory is true or not. You can, I can give you an example. I can make up the most ludicrous theory, and I could give you accurate predictions from it. But the quantum physics makes incredibly accurate predictions, general relativity. And yet what they're saying is they now understand these two theories. They contradict each other. They contradict each other. Our understanding now of quantum theory and our understanding of general relativity, they're saying they both can't be right. And yet they work. They both work. So this idea that the, the, the theory works and you could get technology, this was one of the eye-openers for me. And I'll leave with this as we go, we go to the break. The fact that a theory works, the fact that you can get accurate predictions from it, the fact that you could create workable technology from it, is a completely separate issue from whether the theory happens to be true or not. And when that first dawned on me, I thought, wow. Wow, that was fascinating. And perhaps later, we'll pick that up. All right, look, how long the breaks are for? 15 minutes? Okay, let's take a break, and then I'll see you back here if you're going to come back anyway. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.